Open your Bibles, we're going to get right into it. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, if you guys want to write down, there's, so there's four different passages we're going to look at that are all kind of a, the similar theme. So the first is Second Peter 3, verses 1 through 15, so most of that chapter, Second Peter 3, verses 1 through 15. Then we're going to look at Romans 13. Ephesians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 5. So before we get into this, just a quick review and then why we're going to be going over this topic this morning that I will introduce momentarily here. So we've been going over evangelism, how you share the gospel, why we need to share the gospel. And then we talked about the difference between summer and winter and harvest time. And then the, the time of the day and the time of the night. And so we've gone over how right now, is harvest time in the sense that this is right now we're supposed to be focusing on bringing people to Jesus because it's harvest time. And so we've been looking at a proverb that says that a son who gathers in summer is wise, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So we've just been talking about how gathering in summer is about, really it's about evangelism. It's bringing people into the faith as our way of bringing in the harvest. It's a harvest of souls, ultimately. And so, speaking of that topic of the difference between summer and winter, and then the day and the night, we're going to be talking about what our responsibility is for ourselves, aside from evangelism, um, in order to be children or sons of the day. How do we actually conduct ourselves um, if we're focusing on being of the day? So, that's what Second Peter chapter 3 gets into. So we will start in verse 1. It says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now I can say, first of all, just about that first verse, that this Bible has been the same for 2,000 years. And the reason why it doesn't change is because we need a lot of reminders. We need to have our minds stirred up constantly. So don't worry about it. Nothing in the Bible gets old. And if you think it's gotten old, it's because your mind isn't stirred up. Okay. So verse two, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So just so you guys know what that means in this, this day and age. Realize that Peter is actually prophesying this. Because it wasn't happening as prominently as it is now when Peter was writing. But what he's talking about is that the closer that we got to the end, the more you would be, see, you would see people arising who would actually deny that the end was going to happen, period. And so there's actually a lot of teaching out there. I've mentioned this before, but there's a lot of teaching out there that actually says that the end, you know, the apocalypse of book of revelation and the second coming and all that stuff is just allegorical for something spiritual. A lot of people don't actually think it's going to happen. And the reason why is because 
for a long, 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 long time, we've had a lot of people saying, oh, the end's going to happen at this date, and then it's going to happen at this date, and then it never happens. And you get a whole bunch of people disappointed and starting to believe that, okay, well, maybe it's never going to happen at all. And it just starts to create this mindset that, just like he writes, all things are going to continue as they did from the beginning of creation. In other words, everything has always been the same for the past 6,000 years of human history. So why change how we live? That's the mindset. So the, the way that that's creeped into the Christian mind today is that we've lived our lives as though we have 80 or so years promised to us. And so we might as well live life as our forefathers did live for our own agenda, our own ambitions for ourselves and just hopefully enjoy life before we die. And there's a lot of people that think that way. A lot of Christians that think that way. And that is actually the mindset of what Jesus rebukes in one of his parables for saying that a servant says in his heart, Oh, my master is delaying his coming. So I might as well continue to eat and drink. And what does it matter? Right? So that's, that's the mindset that Peter's addressing here. And he says it begins with denying that his coming is even going to happen. And then the continuance of creation as it always has continued. Then he says in verse five, for this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So, important point here, he's talking about the flood, Noah's flood, right? Jesus, in Matthew 24, said the days of the end, also in Matthew 10, I believe, he said the days of the end would be just like the days of Noah. And when you think about the days of Noah, typically like when you read Genesis, it talks about violence, like Genesis chapter 6. It says the whole earth was filled with violence and the intent of every person's heart was evil continually. That's what we tend to highlight as what was most prominent in civilization in the days of Noah. But Jesus actually didn't say that the violence was the biggest problem. And you'd think that's what he would say because that's what Genesis 6 says. But what Jesus said was that in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And we're focused so much just on enjoying life that when the flood came, it swept them all away and they didn't know until it was too late. That's what Jesus actually said about what it was like in the days of Noah. And this is what Peter's talking about, that the closer we get to the end, there's going to be more people denying that the end is even coming. So they just continue as they always have, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Yeah. Yeah. People forgetting God. Yep. Absolutely. So he says, that's the problem, right? And he says this, they willfully forget. In other words, that if when the world became that distracted and that forgetful of God, that he sent this flood and the whole earth was destroyed. He's saying, don't you think it's going to happen again? Why would, why should we escape? And we've actually gotten a lot longer. Noah's world got a thousand years before the flood happened. We've had a whole lot longer. I mean, if you're just talking about from the day that that flood happened, we've had about 5,000 years. So God's been very patient with us. Since the cross, it's been a little over 2,000. So what's stopping it from happening, happening again? The point is nothing. It is going to happen. So then Peter gets into what we should do about it. Verse 10, or excuse me, verse 8. 
But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this is a part that has to do with, or it applies to evangelism. So when I just mentioned how many years it's been since the last global judgment, is God just getting lazy? He's just slacking off, right? That's the accusation. And he says, no, God's not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but he's long suffering. In other words, he's patient. Why is he patient? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish and he wants everyone to come to repentance. So the reason why he's giving us so much time is so that more people will get saved. What was your comment? Right, right, exactly. So that's his point. All these thousand years, it's only been a couple days to God, right? So he's really not giving us a whole lot of time as far as his perspective is concerned. But the reason why he's patient is so that more people get saved. That's why. So we should be prioritizing then in terms of evangelism, getting more people saved. Because that's why we're here. That's why he's waiting. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Okay. So I was just thinking about this the past few days. And I just was asking myself, kind of as a representative of the whole world, if I really knew and believed that everything about this world was going to be melted with fervent heat, and everything that's in this world would pass away. And if I knew that that was going to happen, either in my lifetime or after I die, when the second coming happens, whatever comes first, why on earth would I think that anything that I do for this earth or that is of this earth would be of any value and why would I give any attention to it if it was all going to pass away? And so I realized that if, if we would live with the awareness that it's all going to be destroyed. And we really believe that it would change how we lived every day, right? So if it's not changing how you're living every day, then maybe you don't actually believe it. And that was the question or the challenge that was being posed to me when I was praying about this. I just was like, Lord, I, I'm supposed to be focusing on the fact that you're delaying your coming so more people can get saved. And if you sent me to see people saved, then if I'm not doing that, do I actually believe that you're coming? Do I actually believe that all these things will melt with fervent heat and be destroyed? Do I believe that? My actions would say no if I wasn't taking that action, right? So in verse 12, he says, look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. So that's the two things that, well, this is actually two out of the three. The first is bring people to repentance. The second is look for. The third is hasten in the coming of the day of God. That's the second coming. And the, the day that he describes here, which is 
the elements melting with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So we're actually supposed to look for that day. That actually means be aware of it. Set your sight on it. Be aware that that's happening. Now, of all the things that we think about in terms of this life and this walk with God, how often do we spend thinking about the coming of this day? Probably not all that often because it seems to be way off in the distance, not necessarily relevant to every day, so it seems. So we don't think about it very much. But he says to actually look for it. Then he says, hasten it in. Now that is basically a term that means act as though you would bring this day to happen sooner with your actions. The actions being bringing people to repentance. So in other words, imagine it was just you. Let's say you're the only believer on the planet. And God has chosen you to bring more people to repentance. And he told you when this day of God comes depends on how quickly you get people saved. And you know that this day also means the redemption of your body and what you might call the rapture and all that. You would think that you would put in some solid effort to get people saved, right? Otherwise, if you just live for yourself, then for goodness sakes, it could be thousands of years and nothing would happen. So he's saying live as though your actions bring in the second coming. That's what he's saying. Do your part, right? Now, obviously, it doesn't all depend on you because there's a lot of believers in the world that are also doing the same thing. But if it did depend on you, act as though your actions would speed up the coming of the day of God. That's what we're called to do. So bring people to repentance. Look for this day and hasten it in. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the last instruction he gives us. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives, you some, gives us some warnings. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Don't twist the scriptures to destruction. Make sure you're taught and stable, not untaught and unstable. Beware. Don't fall from your own steadfastness and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How you conduct yourself, how much effort you give to seeing people come to repentance. That's really all that matters. And if we believe that this day was coming, we would live by these principles, by this truth. That's how we would live. Um, does, before I move on to the next set of scripture, does anyone have any comments or questions that you'd like to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had it up here. I just want to add... And maybe ask 
um, verse 16, that word unstable rest, the King James says, um, also means pervert the scriptures. And it says also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So I just think of itching ears. Maybe you have another comment on that because there's just so much commentary, especially if you're in social media, just people giving their opinion and then what they think, what would be lead to good having a good day. And it's just sticking to the word. It says, beware in 17, lest being led away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. So I just want to encourage all of us to stick to the word, stick to the word. That's why it's so important we study to show ourselves approved and know the scriptures, not just memorizing them, but get it starts kind of in your head, but get it in your heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Laura can take the microphone behind you. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for adding that. I can just comment how he says untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. It's interesting because when you think of what causes a person to twist scripture to their own destruction, he says it's because they're untaught and unstable. Now, when you think of untaught, this doesn't mean that every single person has to rely on some human teacher. The point is that when we isolate ourselves, Proverbs says uh, it, it actually ends in us seeking our own desire and its foolishness. So being untaught is really about clinging to your own I would say specialized interpretation of scripture and not letting it be tested and challenged and proven. Unteachable. Right. Exactly. So if you're not teachable, you would remain untaught. Right. So. By choice. Right. By choice. Exactly. So that's why we need each other for this process. Then the unstable is that if you don't have stability in your life, then nor are you going to have a stable understanding and application of scripture. So therefore, it's important to be a stable person, um, which is about character and godliness. So that's just a side note there. Any more comments or questions about this first right here? If it's short, you don't have to, but... Okay, take it, yeah. Uh, one is just the first thing you were saying about, like, God's patience because he wants everyone to be saved. But obviously we have just a certain amount of years that we're alive. So it's not like someone who lived 200 years ago has a longer chance because he's waiting. You know what I mean? Unless souls come back and get like a second chance to believe, which I don't know if scripture really addresses that. Um, and then also just the, like in Noah's day, like it's been compared to like before the flood will be similar to before he returns. And so in that sense, like, can we relate what Noah did? Like, what was his job? It was to build the ark despite everybody around him mocking him of him but like in the building of the ark that was like his preaching the gospel you know 
Yep. Amen. Yeah, good points. The, the thing about Noah, it's a very interesting study, but the Bible says about Noah in Hebrews 11 that he built an ark for the saving of his household, which is interesting because we typically think of evangelism as like what we're building, our, our life, our doctrine, our message is for the saving of the world. But about Noah, it says that he built the ark for the saving of his household. Now, there's a verse in 1 Peter, previous epistle of Peter's, that says, the time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God, which is about the church, believers. And then it says, so if scarcely a righteous man is saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So it actually says, and that Greek word for judgment is, is the same Greek word that's used for condemnation and, and God's punishment. So it says the time has come for judgment to begin with the church, which is interesting because what that tells you is that the righteous, this is talking about people who appear to be righteous. They have all the qualifications of what we would call a righteous person, but scarcely they are saved. So when the Bible says, for example, in 1 Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine for in doing so, you'll, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. Building our doctrine, making sure it's pure and biblical and unadulterated is about making sure that the people inside the church are saved. Because if we're building a false doctrine, then the people that are inside the church would not be saved, right? So we build for God's own household first to make sure that people that are inside his, what we would call, I guess, his, his household or his family would be saved. Aside from that, second to that is actually us preaching to others. So the point is that we have to make sure our doctrine is sound for ourselves first. Otherwise, if we go try to preach that to the world, we're just spreading more falsity. So Noah was building for himself. He had to make sure that every nook and cranny had, had pitch filling in the cracks, right? Otherwise, the boat would break. And that's what doctrine is for, right? The Bible says that words, words of the wise are like well-driven nails, and so if you imagine Noah building the ark, he's trying to make sure the nails are driven in well, right? And it's words of the wise. It's the word of God that makes sure that the doctrine that we're building is for our own salvation and also the salvation of others. So that's why it's so important to know the word. Yeah. Uh, could you clarify more? I just know after I had been a Christian for a couple decades, I don't think I scripturally understood the word righteousness. And I thought I played some part in that. Our part is only believe. Jesus said, only believe. Well, then we got to know what are we to believe. And it's only the word. Not one ounce of righteousness belongs to me. It's only what Christ did. So we can get religious really easy about that. And the other part the Lord talks to me a lot about is chastisement of the Lord, which I would like maybe you to define, David, because we should want that because we need to grow up in the things of God. And that means we're going to be chastised like a loving father. My dad was really good at chastising me, my earthly dad, but he was gone a lot. So looking back, I wished he would have been around more just to chastise me, <laughs> help me grow up, you know, because I didn't know. 
And then you had a really good question, Amy, about a second chance to be saved. Like, did you mean after the rapture? I wasn't sure what you meant. this him being patient you know what I mean because it goes back to why is he being like we're going to keep reproducing so there's going to be more and more people so there's really right. no end to to the amount of people that need to be saved souls that he's sure <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah well short answer for that um, before I address what Marcy brought up is that so like when Jesus says, for example, this gospel will be preached as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. It's like, okay, well, what about all the people that died before the gospel was preached to all nations? <laughs> you know, um, but one assurance that we're given in scripture, it begins, I think, with Acts chapter 10, when you have this angel that appears to this Roman named Cornelius and tells him to hear from Peter. So one of the things that that tells us is that angels are actually involved in the process of bringing the gospel to people. And God also brings dreams and visions and all kinds of stuff to the world. So we're, we're promised that every single person is judged justly on the basis of what they know. And that if it's the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then obviously God would make sure that everyone who has ever lived and died will have been given the opportunity to accept and believe in that name. So even the people that have lived and died before a man or woman preached the gospel to them would have had it introduced to them either in a dream, a vision, or an angel. So even if we miss some people, God will make sure that they're contacted somehow. So I would say that like when Jesus said it must be preached as a witness to all nations, the Greek word means ethnicities. So God will make sure that is fulfilled. We just have to do our part. Does that kind of address it? And it's a little bit different answer than what your question was, but kind of. Yes. Um, I think people also know through creation. That as well. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Romans 1. Romans um, 1, 18, 19. Romans 1. It says, for that which is known about God is evident to them, meaning all men, and made plain in their inner consciousness, because God himself has shown it to them. For every since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that he, that have been made his handiworks. So men are without excuse altogether without any defense or justification. Is it amplified? Yeah. That's a good, good translation for that verse. Yeah. Yep. So creation as well. Yeah. What may be known of God is manifest in them. Yep. So yeah, this doesn't mean that, um, again, to kind of finish off 
Amy's point, this doesn't mean that it's our responsibility in whatever generation we live in to get everyone in our generation saved through the gospel they hear from our mouths because there's going to be more people born constantly. So it's just about, just about getting the gospel to spread, period, so that the people that are born will hear it maybe in a future generation. You know, So it's, it's still spreading, and that's the point. Jesus said this gospel has to be preached and a witness to all ethnicities, then the end will come. He didn't say every individual, because that's literally impossible. The point is about, we do our work to get the gospel to spread in every ethnicity or language group on the planet. And then, then the end can come. But anybody that we miss, God will make sure that they, they have what they need to know. Um, but we still play our part. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting, too, is that even in the first chapter of Acts, like when they all spoke in tongues and people from all over the known world all heard in their native language, they all went and spread the word. And they all came to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, and then they all went home, and they were all, all around the known world at the time. So just in the first day that the seed of Christianity even was planted, you already had global evangelism happening. Just in the first day. So that's just, God knows what he's doing. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Um, so I'll just briefly address Marcy's point about the chastening of the Lord. So I would just encourage you guys to read Hebrews 12. Talks about it extensively. If you want to know about that write, that, write that down. Hebrews 12 essentially talks about the fact that if God loves us and if we're legitimately his children, he will correct us. He'll rebuke us. In Revelation, Jesus says, all whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's Revelation 3. He says that. And that correction, 2 Timothy says, is what the word of God is sufficient for. So it says in 2 Timothy 3, Verses 16 and 17 talks about all scriptures breathed by, breathed by God is profitable for correction. It's one of the things that's listed there. Um, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So that you may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, is what it says in that passage, verse 17. Hebrews 12 says it so that you may be a partaker of his holiness. So if God uses his word to correct you on something, it's to make you complete for every good work and to make you more like him which is to be a partaker of his holiness. And if he loves you, that's what he will do for you. If you are not corrected, or if you do not receive correction, you're acting as an illegitimate son or illegitimate child, which means if you despise the chastening of the Lord or are discouraged when you're rebuked by him, then you're not understanding that it's his discipline by which he demonstrates his love for you. So one of the best things you can do for yourself is receive his correction and be thankful for it because it's about making you a partaker of his holiness. So, Part of the reason why we are corrected is simply because there's, like I was mentioning earlier, earlier, there's things that we need to understand and believe in order for our faith to be sustained. Because as long as your faith continues, you have salvation. But if you deny Christ at any point and abandon faith in the Son of God, then we will have denied salvation. And that's why Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. So, if a person, like Second Peter says earlier, if a person comes to the knowledge, like the saving knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but then they fall away and are again entangled in lewdness and lust and lured away, the Bible says the end for them becomes worse than the beginning. And it's actually better for them that they had not come to the knowledge of the truth than having known to turn again to, to, uh, to sin. So it's really important that when we're preaching the gospel and learning about it, that our understanding of that gospel is pure 
and biblical, because it's by that doctrine you save both yourself and those who hear you. If we're spreading a doctrine that is not true, you're going to have a lot of people converted to something that isn't true, and a lot of people that think they're saved that are not. And so that's why it's just so, so important that this doctrine is kept pure. So, um, yeah, just good things to keep in mind there. Okay, I want us to go to Romans 13. We're going to start in verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. We're going to talk a little bit more about conduct and godliness and the time in which we live. The focus of what we're to do, verse 8, he says, Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Then he talks about love fulfills the law. You know the commandments. If you skip to verse 10, he says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So he says, love people, love each other. Then go to verse 11. He says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So if you're to sum it up, these are kind of the two main points. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love a person, in other words, you fulfill righteousness. So becoming love is the focus. Then he says, make no provision for the flesh in verse 14. So those are the, basically the two main points of this whole passage. What fulfills putting off darkness and putting on light is about whether you're sowing into the spirit or the flesh. And if you want to make sure you're not sowing into the flesh, don't make provision for it. That Greek word for provision actually means the foresight or considering something ahead of time. And then it also means provision. So in other words, don't think ahead of time about what will eventually be for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So for example, practically speaking, it's a little bit confusing, but practically speaking, this is like if you're considering, let's say, let's talk about a TV, right? Let's say you want to buy a TV. If what you're going to watch on that television is sowing into the flesh, then thinking about purchasing that TV is thinking about the flesh ahead of time. So anytime you are considering something that will lead to sin or that will have a negative end should not be considered to begin with. So don't create the opportunity for sin to get into your life at all. Because it's one thing once you're in sin to get out of it. That's a whole lot harder than getting rid of the thing that will become sin later. Right? So just, just don't do it, right? Don't even go there. So, yeah. Yeah. Inception. Deal with it at the inception, which is right. the thought. The thought itself. Yep. Yep. Right. Over here.
Well, it's like when uh, Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, you know, just getting out of here and uh, before I even get into it. And, right. Yeah. He left the house. Yes. yes. Ran out of the house. Mm -hmm. He didn't stay right. in the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. So this is what I want to get into. I'm not going to get into detail on the love one another because you guys can study that on your own. But I want to get into how he, he focuses on awake out of sleep. Don't be distracted. If you're in sin or in the flesh, that's works of darkness. And you can't be a child of God in the light and walk in darkness at the same time. Because he says in Peter that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. If you're walking in darkness, you're blind and that day will come upon you as a thief. But you walk in the light, then you will be aware, you will be focused, you will be undistracted and that day will be celebration for you. So you have to stay in the light in order to be able to receive that salvation and have it not overtake you as a thief in the night, right? So then he says at the end of the day, make sure you don't make any provision for the flesh. So he says explicitly revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. Those things are obvious. He states those explicitly. Don't walk in those things. But he finishes with make no provision for no provision for the, for the flesh to fulfill its lust, because if you do that, you will have guarded yourself from essentially all sin, right? So what I did want to get into, just a little bit of practical examples here. I already brought up television. That's actually a good, a good one to use. That you should not, to fulfill this verse, should not want to do or practice things that have a risk of leading you into sin, whether presently or at some point in the future. And it's not just about you, but others around you as well. So in Romans 14, Paul says that anything that you do that would cause another brother to become weak, to be offended, or to stumble should not be practiced by you also. So something might be okay for you, like if we're talking about television, you might be able to have a healthy relationship with, let's say, movies. You could watch a movie every once in a while, whatever. But if somebody else, you know, has a real problem with it, and you entertaining that is only going to be negative for that friend, then the Bible says you're no longer walking in love because you will have contributed to causing your brother to stumble, in which case it's not good for you either. So... You got to know that you got to know yourself in this, in the sense that if you know that something poses any kind of risk of leading you back into sin, then get rid of it. Any kind of risk at all. Create no opportunity, no foresight, like it says in the Greek, to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So when we're thinking about what Second Peter 3 talks about, um, and there's also a verse in Ephesians 5 that says, Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And as this applies to what we're talking about now. Redeeming the time basically means to redeem back or win back or restore what was lost, is what that Greek word means. And he says it's time because the days are evil. That Greek word for evil means a decay. The days are decaying. The world and its time is running down very quickly. So he's saying things are perishing so quickly 
that it's part of our responsibility to restore back any time that was lost. So for us, that means most obviously it's any time that you spent not following Jesus, ultimately standing alone is wasted time. But if you live now circumspectly in wisdom, you can redeem that time that was lost, which is an amazing promise because that actually tells you what you do with today actually is part of what God uses to restore what was lost in the past. It's amazing how God does this. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but he's an eternal being and he can bring profit into to anything. And so as an example, one of the things that Colossians 4 says is that walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, unbelievers is talking about. And then it says again, just like Ephesians 5, redeeming the time. So he's saying how you conduct yourself around unbelievers actually contributes to the restoration of any time that was lost. And the reason that this works is because the more people, <clears throat> excuse me, that you see born again or come to repentance results in a multiplication of the spread of the gospel, which means you're actually living in multiple lives at once. And that's how time is restored. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you see one person come to repentance and you disciple them to the point where they're now spreading the gospel at the same time that you are, you're living two lifetimes. If you think about it that way. So every life that's one to the father is more time of yours that was lost restored. What this means is that the more time that you give to seeing people come to the repentance, the more time of yours that was lost is restored and the more effective that your time is. Any time that you give that is burned, wasted, or used up on fruitless things is more time lost and more time that God has given you squandered. So when you think about it, anything that wastes time even if it's not blatantly sinful, ultimately is making provision for the flesh. Because the flesh fights against the spirit, the Bible says. So you might be thinking about something that, let's say, I don't know, it could be your favorite Netflix show. Let's say it's not, not a bad show. But what, it, what does it add to you? Right. What camp is it in? If it's fighting against the goals of the spirit, then it's of the flesh. Because the flesh lusts against the spirit. Right. Right. Yeah. Amy has a comment here. Correct. That's what I believe. Yeah. There's just the flesh and the spirit. <coughs> Everything. I mean, there's no gray area. Like some people think that like when it comes to hearing, hearing from God, a lot of many will say that there's, you know, God's voice, the devil's voice, and then your voice. But ultimately your voice is either going to be of God or of the devil There's not really anything in between. Thank you. Sure. He hasn't, doesn't cold water make it worse. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay now, but just in case, just in, you can just set, just set it on the table over there and we can grab it. Yeah. 
So if that's the case, David, you either watch television or you don't, which I turn mine off. But anyway, um, but I also turned off drinking. And I never drank for many years as a Christian, but when I moved here. Um, so my question is, is it okay to drink at all? You're talking about alcohol? Yeah, I'm talking about alcohol. I don't want to get into this in detail, but you won't find a verse that says it's wrong to have a, to have a glass of wine, for example. But anything that makes your brother stumble is wrong. So it might not make you stumble, but it could very easily make somebody else stumble. Not necessarily them seeing you drink, but just even talking about it can make someone stumble. You know, If the Bible says anything you do that might embolden your brother to sin or to be weak is not love for you. So, correct, or legitimize, right. Making something appear right when it would be obviously wrong. You know, don't let your good be spoken of as evil, the Bible says. Your liberty in Christ does not give you a right to just live however you want and not care about what other people think, because what other people see matters. Even if it's something's not a stumbling block for you, it will be for somebody else. And so it's so important to just live above reproach in that sense. So that's what I'd say to that, yeah. I guess there's a... There's a process that we go through as we grow in Christ. So we shouldn't have any condemnation if things are kind of starting to fall off right. over time. Right. And, um, you know, because we don't want to walk, number one, in guilt, and we don't want to be scurrying around uh, doing every, everything that we think God wants us to do all at once. So you need to hear from God, and it does say in Hebrews to labor to rest. Well, that rest doesn't mean putting your feet up and watching the Vikings. It means resting in him so you can hear his voice and then tuning into the word of God again so you're led. But I just want to make sure people understand that that doesn't mean that your life should be going 100 miles an hour. Right, right. I just wanted to add to what you were saying, David, the question about are there just two camps? And if you look in Romans 8, starting in 5, for those who are according to the flesh and are controlled by its unholy desires, set their minds on and pursue those things which gratify the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit and are controlled by the by the desires of the Spirit, set their minds on and seek those things which gratify the Holy Spirit. Then it kind of further explains what that means. Now the mind of the flesh, which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit, is death. Death that comprises all the miseries arising from sin, both here and hereafter. But the mind of the Holy Spirit is life and soul peace, both now and forever. That is because the mind of the flesh with its carnal thoughts and purposes is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, you know, either what you're doing and thinking and pursuing is giving you life and peace, or it is producing death. There is no in-between. Yep, absolutely. Okay, we have a comment over here. Yeah. Um, just 
really quick in Proverbs 31, 4 through 5, it just talks about how wine is not for kings. It's it's not for kings to drink wine or rulers to crave beer. Um, least they forget what the law decrees and de- deprive all oppressed of their rights. Um, I just think, well, and it, it goes for everyone, but it's like we're representing the kingdom of God and we don't want to forget what the kingdom decrees and what the kingdom says because what you said, people are watching and it's we're representing that. So we don't want to bring something that is less of what that says to them. Yep. It's a great comment. Yeah. Yep. Appearances matter. It does. And what people see is because you, you represent the kingdom, just like Alex is saying, you represent Jesus. So if what people see you do and say should be representative of Jesus. My father died of alcoholism at 48, and I never not mention that to people because I want them to know that there are consequences to that. But having, uh, you know, having that in your life and, and knowing it's there, it's just a, it, it's something that can sneak up on you. He was a good guy, you know, but it got him. And uh, you know, not, not having people misunderstand the fact that, oh, I'm just doing this for fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sue. I think of it as in like sitting with a friend, you know, like friends out at a bar or something like that. Are we being a witness? Are we not? Um, We're basically camouflaged with the world. And as a light, we wouldn't be standing out if we are camouflaged. Right. Yep. Yep. Amen. Great point. Yeah. Sure. Ephesians 5.18 says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. So it's just a slippery slope to even go there. I'd rather be drunk with the spirit. And you can be drunk with the spirit. You should ask God about that. (laughs) Basically means you can have plenty of fun with the Holy Spirit. That's the way I look at it. There was was a guy I was uh, sharing the gospel with the other day who was not a believer. And he wanted to hang out, which was cool. He wanted to talk more. And he was like, do you smoke weed? And I said... No, but I don't need to. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I said, I, I, I have plenty of peace and joy without it. You know? um, and so that's just a better way of looking at it. You know? I've heard it said there's no high like the most high. Right? Um, yeah. Amen. Okay. Sure, yeah. Well, I just want to make a comment. I know that, um, well, I'll admit it, I do. Mm-hmm. Have probably half a glass of wine, maybe ever the night, TV, and and, and also with some good sake I discovered. <laughs> but uh, but you know I don't have a problem with that. You know, with that doesn't. Sure. It, it's not a stumbling block for me. But you know, I do know that, um, of course, alcohol you know is a drug just like any other thing. And uh, I sure. know that uh, was it. Someone said for Paul and Timothy, take a little bit of wine for his stomach. I know for mm-hmm. medicinal reasons. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, and also another thing, too, but not putting a stumbling block in front of anyone. I don't mean to sound like a goody two-shoes, but years ago when I was working for a big corporation, uh, the woman, you know, who I'm still friends with, was a special needs employee, and 
She was not allowed to eat at her desk because she could not eat and work at the same time. And, you know, I could, but I did not eat while I was working because I did not want to put a stumbling block in front of her. So, I guess I don't mean to sound like a goody two shoes. <laughs> no, that's okay. Like yeah. Else. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, thank you. Yeah. Rule of thumb if something's not a stumbling block for you, great. And doesn't even it's not even really about wine. Ultimately, you can talk about anything. If it's not a stumbling block for you, great. But here's how you know whether or not it's a stumbling block for you. What you say is not an issue issue for you. Take it away. How does it affect you? Right? So, if if let's say I can be anything, but Sure. There you go. That, let's use that as an example. Take that away. Does it affect you emotionally? Right. Is it an idol or not? So if you can, you know, take away that glass of wine every other night. Sure. But what, you know, what happens? Does it affect how you think, affect how you feel? Does it take away from your positive attitude or your joy or peace in Christ? That's what you got to think about. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Because we're supposed to be content in Christ alone, right? So that's really how you know if it's a stumbling block or not, if it becomes an idol in any way, shape, or form. That's, and it, if even the thought of removing something is like, oh, man, I don't want to do that, it's probably an idol, you know? I do know that with addiction, sure. the addiction always comes first. People I've known and... And others have seen others, and until that that problem is resolved, the addiction always comes first. Mm -hmm. So even before family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that'd be another thing to look out for. Yeah, if, if it if you put it first in your life, of course, yeah, it's a stumbling block. Yeah, over here. Last comment on this, and then we'll move on because this could be a whole other whole other teaching. One thing I omitted to add was that we got some Al-Anon, it was, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous for teens. And what they said in some of the literature I remember reading was that if you never drink, you'll never become an alcoholic. Yeah. So you have yep. to draw that line and say, yep. what do I want in my life and what don't I want in my life? Yep. 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 <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So moving forward here, the focus really is about whether you're walking properly as in the day, not in the night, and whether you're making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You do not want to make it easy to sin. Anything that you do that makes, makes it easier for sin to get you, you should not do. It's really that simple. And for some people, that's different, different areas of need for some people, but some people, like I know, Karen, you said you did this. You either unplugged your TV or got rid of it. What? Which? I can't remember which of the two you said you did, but. Sure. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and then it it can happen. Yeah. So when you think about something, you don't think it's an issue. Get rid of it for a while. See how you react. But anything that distracts you, anything that wastes time. Shouldn't be done. Now, rule of thumb for how you know it's a time waster or not is that everything that we do or everything that we focus on should be what is essential to life, spiritual life, eternal life, and then life in the physical. 
So in other words, make sure you have habits that make continuing to live physically easier, which is make sure you're getting exercise, make sure you're eating a, at least a moderately healthy diet, you know, just live off of junk food. Yeah, that, that too. You got to take care of your body, right? That and then spiritual life. So that's the word, that's prayer, bringing people to repentance, discipleship, church community, all that stuff. Whatever is essential to those two categories is what we should focus on. Yes, spending time with friends occasionally is good. That's fellowship. That's good. Um, for some people, it's taking a vacation somewhere. Sure, that's fine. But what you're focusing on should be what's essential to those two things, physical and spiritual life. And if you focus on those things and make sure you don't waste time and make no provision for the flesh, then you'll be doing what's right. Kelly, did you have a comment? Um, I just wanted to read uh, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Control. I think everybody forgets that last fruit. We focus on the love, the joy, the peace. But, I mean, really, that's the root of what we're talking about, mm -hmm. self-control. And having control over your thoughts, control over your actions, and owning it and yep. being in control of that and not letting those other things control you. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, right here. So I believe in the King James, instead of self-discipline self in the King James, they, call it, they talk about temperance, and that's really an old word, but temperance is what it's like just... Moderation there. Never done moderation. Oh, bring on addiction to exercise. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what we're getting at here then is if you focus on, so let's just, to make sure we're circling back here to what the scripture started with there, that the focus needs to be that you live as in the day and not as in the night. Walk properly, walk focused, walk circumspectly. In order to do that, it's about redeeming the time. So the opposite of that would be wasting time or continuing to waste time in addition to the time that's already been wasted before you were walking with Jesus, right? To make sure you don't waste time and to make sure you multiply that effort, the more time you give into what contributes to more people coming to repentance, the more wasted time is restored. So for some people, you might think, okay, if I quit this habit or that habit, maybe I'll stop what's wasted there. But it doesn't quite end there. It's replacing that with something, right? So you could stop watching TV or you could stop drinking wine or whatever. But ultimately, if you're not replacing that with something that will add to making you a more effective witness for the kingdom of God, then that time isn't actually restored. Otherwise, it'll just be wasted in something else, right? So if you want to just make an accurate judgment about what you should do with your time, if time that you would have spent, let's say, um, you know, watching something on TV, time you would have spent doing that, if you say, okay, instead, I'm going to get in my word, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to learn something about God's kingdom, learn something about, about Christ, and grow, what that does for you is adds knowledge and understanding that you will use and God will use through you to bring somebody to repentance, ultimately, or for you to contribute wisdom into somebody else's life. That's how you restore or redeem time. 
And for others, depending on where you're at in your growth, it might be some kind of relationship that has an evangelistic purpose. It might be a friend or a family member that doesn't, doesn't know Jesus yet. Or maybe calling up a friend and, or offering to do a Bible study with somebody that doesn't have anybody they're studying with. You know, Filling in time with activities that are of the spirit and of the kingdom is how you redeem time. And you have to think of it as outside of yourself because that's why Colossians 4 says you redeem the time by walking in wisdom towards those who are outside. That's unbelievers. So the wisdom is about applying it to those who don't know Christ yet or are not walking with Jesus. Any time that you give to that or that contributes to that is how time is redeemed, ultimately. Yes. One is like, I'm trying to do these things, you know, more like religion, more like rules and having that be the forefront of your mind versus identity, like even self-control, for example, like we're dead to ourselves. Like that's the reality. So, so that takes care of control. If it's dead, it can't be active controlling mm -hmm. anything we've right. given that control to god you know? so mm -hmm. yeah just for me personally like it's hard to like wake up every day and then have some i like i need something to keep me focused on like this is why i'm doing this ultimately. like i'm thinking about like i want a tattoo like on my body that just i can look at every day and be like okay this is you know, like the goal of our instruction is love. Something like that's like brings me back to identity because I feel like if I keep trying to follow all the rules and, you know, do all these things we're talking about in the verses, if I don't become it, like through understanding that's who I am, actually. It's not I'm trying to be that. It's who I am already. Right. When I first came across um, Andrew Warmick, I think it was in 2005, and the first thing was, what is it, mind, spirits, whatever. The whole thing is I just had this, whoa, by the Holy Spirit who lives in me, I have access to the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not about me. It's about grace. I get what you're saying. And it's about our identity in that, he lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and so we have access. But for me, it's about choosing. I just want to add to that too, like what I was saying, is that affects how I see myself like going out and talking to people about it. Because if I don't, if I am not an example, I'm being a hypocrite. You know, I'm saying, you know, I don't want to drink alcohol, but then like, if I do, that's what people are seeing. So, like, I can say all day, like, I don't want to. But if I don't become it by realizing, like, I'm free from that, you know, then, sure. then yeah. it's not as effective. I can make I it quick. Want, I'm not as bold to share. Sure. I can make a quick comment to that. But did, did you want to add something, Marcy, later? Or you want me to go first? I'll, I'll make my comment first, then you can. Um, so... 
to me, this all comes back to what you're feeding into about making provision for the flesh or not, because any kind of spiritual discipline that might appear difficult at first is only difficult because we're either feeding or because we're feeding more into the camp of the flesh and that strengthens the flesh. Therefore, it makes it harder to do what's spiritual. So when the Bible says, put to death your members which are on the earth, it's supposed to be, it seems like it's a quick process. I mean, it's just like decapitate it, boom, move on. And the point is though, the way that the flesh is put to death is not like, you know, you have a, you know, execution ceremony and you bring the guillotine down and boom, and then you never face it again. That's not how it works. Putting to death the flesh is about starving it because that's, that's how it works because the flesh is something that can always be at your doorstep if you just let it run wild. But, <clears throat> but if you feed the spirit more, so into spiritual life, it will strengthen you there, make it easier. So removing provision for the flesh not only helps solve the flesh issue, but it also helps solve the, the spirit issue, which is making it easier for you to do what is spiritual is, is actually given to you through making no provision for the flesh. So if you want to read the Bible more, it's not just about straight reading the Bible more. It's also about removing the things that would distract you from the word of God. So, right, exactly. Because you can't feed the flesh and the spirit at the same time and see the spirit strengthened. You have to feed one and starve the other. And that's how you put the flesh to death. So if it's hard for you to read the Bible when you want to, what are some things that are distracting you from it? What is inhibiting those spiritual disciplines? And in many cases, it's just other habits we have that we just kind of have let slide without thinking about it. You know? So that would be my comment to that. What you want and to that's say? great because the Bible says we are crucified. It means you're dead. I mean, we could get a tattoo and say, I'm crucified. But if we're spending the time every day in our Bible, and then you will want to, you know, it's like taste and see that the Lord is good. You will eventually just want to get to your Bible to keep crucified. But I heard someone say once, this was my comment, that, you know, even a little child should be able to see your witness. So there's a scripture, um, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I don't know anything about alcohol. Unfortunately, I do. But I would like to be in that place. I don't know anything about alcohol. I don't know about drugs. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I'm so innocent like a child, that a child can want to be with me and learn from me. That's how innocent we should be. And he died so I could start over at square one and know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Innocence, yeah. The Greek word for justification actually means innocence. When you read it in the New Testament, that you have now been justified actually means made innocent. So, yeah. I think at one point I had mentioned just piggybacking off you, off of you about dying to self. It takes discipline to die. It's not like you think about those old westerns where someone got shot because nowadays someone gets shot and they're just out. Or at least that's what you see on the video games. But in those old westerns, it would take them like fifteen minutes to die. <laughs> It takes discipline to die. But if we look at Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ to a new life, thus sharing his resurrection from the dead, aim at and seek the rich eternal treasures which are above, which, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds 
and keep them set on what is above, the higher things, not on the things that are on the earth. For as far as this world is concerned, you have died, and your new real life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in the splendor of his glory. So kill, that is deaden, deprive of power, the evil desire lurking in your members, those animal impulses and all that is earthly in you that is employed in sin, sexual vice, impurity, sensual appetites, unholy desires, and all greed and covetousness, for that is the idolatry, the deifying of self and other created things instead of God. It is on account of these very sins that the holy anger of God is ever coming upon the sons of disobedience who are obstinately, I'm saying that wrong, opposed to the divine will. So we have to do something. We're not going to do anything with our bodies if we don't first do it with our minds. It's just not going to happen. Everything we do, we think about it first, even if it's just a split second. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen. Allie, do you have something to share? Yeah. I wasn't here for like the first hour, so I don't know if you talked about this, but one thing that has been a revelation for me recently has been the fear of the Lord in, um, when you know the fear of the Lord, it says you'll depart from evil and knowing that as sons and daughters of God, that we will be chastened chastened, and scourged. And it says that in Revelation, and I don't remember the other spot, but knowing that like in the end, we will also be purified by fire. I don't know if you want to address this more, David, you'd probably explain it better. But knowing that there's consequences for living in the flesh, especially when you know better, like, if you know as a child, Elena gave this example, like, if you know as a child to not jump on the couch, and then you have friends over and your mom catches you jumping on the couch, like, you knew the rule. The friends did not know the rule, per se, but you knew the rule and you did it anyway. So, as children of God, too, it's like, we have a choice to live into the flesh and the spirit, and yes, it's easier to just keep doing what you do, but the fear of God and knowing that there are consequences has really helped me almost be afraid of continuing to walk in the flesh. A healthy fear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like grace gets watered down. I'll just briefly add to that. Grace gets watered down. Yes. We're delivered from uh, judgment of God for past sin. Yes. The Bible says all past times of our ignorance, God has overlooked, but we are told like first Corinthians three says, I mean, I already mentioned first Peter judgment will begin at the house of God is what it says. So there actually is a form of judgment that still applies to believers. And 1 Corinthians 3 says, all of us, our works that we did in the flesh, in this life, will be tested by fire. And it actually says, you will go into God's kingdom as through fire, is what the Bible says. So in other words, anything that is not of God, while you're going, like, passing into the kingdom. So when the, when the earth is purified by fire, we actually go through that too. It actually says that we enter into the kingdom having gone through fire that purified and corrected us before we enter the kingdom. So whatever we don't repent of here 
has to be purified out of us before we enter the kingdom of heaven. For the unbeliever, it's they experience that purification by fire for eternity. That's what hell is. For the believer, it's just like this gauntlet that just before you enter the kingdom. That's first first Corinthians three says that. So that's the judgment that begins with the house of God. So anything that we choose not to repent of, there is correction for before we enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we can either receive that correction now and repent or we'll experience it later. And so the the grace of God doesn't justify or excuse us to continue in sin. It's supposed to motivate us by the fear of God, like Ali was saying, to repent of those things, you know? So my exhortation, what I really wanted to finish with, and this is what I'll end with, um, because it's almost one o'clock, is that what we're told in 2 Peter 3, what we're told in Romans uh, 13, and also in 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians 5, which we briefly addressed, is that we are children of light and of the day, and we're supposed to be living here as sojourners and pilgrims passing through. And the time that we are given is supposed to be used for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring people to repentance. Any time that is wasted ultimately is an insult to what God did for us to make us effective heralders of his kingdom and of his message. And so anything that you choose to do that wastes or burns time contributes to the corruption of the flesh. Anything that you do that contributes to you or others being edified for the expansion of the kingdom is what redeems time. So if you live to redeem the time that was lost, then as the Bible says in Proverbs that we will be wise sons or wise daughters and God will be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so it's just for you to ask yourself, what is in my life that is making provision for the flesh? If it's making that provision, then get rid of it. It's simple. God is pleased with that. It's a good thing to do. Yeah.